Good morning, church. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. I think I say this every time that I preach, but one of the things that we have to recognize on mornings like this is that preaching is a collaborative work. I'm not the only one working, you're working, the Lord is working, uh, and we're in conversation together. It may not be as loud, but you and I are both conversating with one another, but we're also conversating with the Word. Uh, we're asking questions of the Word, we're hearing the Word respond back to us, but, mo- but primarily, the most important thing that we must recognize is that we in faith recognize that the Lord the Holy Spirit, God, is going to be speaking to us this morning too. And so I ask that you would pray with me again. It might feel like we pray so much on a Sunday morning, but it's a necessary thing that we ought to do because we recognize that God is doing a work this morning through us as we talk together and listen to his word. So would you bow your heads with me once more to ask our Lord for help as we hear from him and talk with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of believers, for the invitation of those who are not believers into our midst. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts? Would you ready our minds, free us from distractions so that we might be able to understand what it is that you are saying to us? Guide me, Lord, as your servant. I pray that you would... Help me to be clear. You would give me all that I need, Lord, to faithfully preach your word this morning. We thank you and we love you and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. For a few short weeks, at the end of May and at the beginning of June every year, I become a... NBA sports fan. It doesn't last long, and there isn't much time preparing to do this, but around this time, the NBA Finals begin. And so, of course, I need to understand what is happening, and I get involved. But again, I'm not that much of a basketball fan. And so my interest in basketball is minimal. I watch a couple of minutes of highlights, I read some box scores. I might read an article or two to understand what happened during the game. But that is essentially it. And as many of you know, many of you, some of you might be NBA fans. Some of you know that a couple of nights ago, the Golden State Warriors faced the Toronto Raptors. I had to look down because I need to remember this. I don't know. But they faced each other. And to my surprise, I didn't watch the game, but to my surprise, the Toronto Raptors won the game. Now, again, I did not expect this. I don't know much. I haven't seen much uh, of Toronto Raptors games, but this is what happened. And so I read an article to understand what happened during the game. And one article said it's not complicated. The Raptors were able to commit to a press defense whereby defenders worked together to apply pressure and trap the star players on the Warriors. The goal was to create a wall around the star players. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, those are Warriors players, apparently. If they had the ball, they immediately saw three defenders around them. If they were waiting to receive a pass, defenders came over and prevented them from ever getting near the action. One writer said the Warriors players 
felt smothered and frazzled. Now look, I don't know basketball. Don't let that kind of written account give you a sense that I'm any good at playing basketball. I'm not. But I do know one thing. That if someone is going to describe a player as being frazzled and being smothered, that will lead to some problems on the court, right? Uh, Any good player, no matter how good they are, will find themselves uh, having a bunch of errors, making mistakes. And apparently that's what happened in the game. There were a lot of turnovers that took place during the game because the players felt smothered and frazzled. How do you respond to pressure when you feel pressed? Maybe not on the basketball court, but I mean in life. If you feel pressed, if people or if things are surrounding you, trials are waving their arms at you, how do you respond? That's actually the situation that the early church found themselves in. We've been reading 1 Peter for some time now, and you might remember that this is what is happening for the early church. They are being pressed by an unbelieving world around them. And as often is the case, whenever you feel that pressure from the outside, one of the things that you might be tempted to do is you end up becoming self-absorbed. You give in to pressure to look out for your own interests and to make sure that you preserve yourself to be able to survive the pressure. And that was the temptation that the early church found themselves facing. Peter's audience felt pressed by their experience living in an unbelieving world. They experienced persecution and alienation from neighbors and community members because of their faith. Not only did they suffer for their beliefs, they also struggled to know how their new experience as God's people should affect the way they related to people who were not believers, to unbelieving spouses, to masters, to authority figures who are politicians. What does it mean to be faithful in an unbelieving world? How do you live within that tension of feeling pressed, feeling pressure from the reality of being in an unbelieving world when your value system is at odds with that world? The most natural response would have been to retreat to turn back from that social pressure and to try to fit in with the rest of the community. In other words, go back to living the way you used to look, the way you used to live, the way you used to talk, the way you used to act back before you believed. Or perhaps one other option is to fight back, to try to take whatever power you can muster up to grab for yourself so that you are the one that's holding the whip against those who are in authority against you. Each of these responses is self-absorbed. And yet, this is the real danger for the Christian. When we feel pressed, when we feel the pressure of an unbelieving world, our natural inclination is to become self-interested to look out for our own needs, and even if we don't recognize it right away, to abandon the principles formed by our identity as the community of God's people. So what does it look like for you and I to feel pressed by an unbelieving world? It's likely that the pressure that the first century Christians face is not like our own pressure. For them, 
they faced life-threatening persecution. Now, some of our brothers and sisters around the world, in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America, have faced this kind of pressure. But for us, the pressure feels a bit different. For us, perhaps that pressure is the pressure to compromise, to figure out what is the common denominator of belief and and practice while still maintaining a kind of solidarity with the unbelieving world. The kind of syncretism, right? The sort of compromise that happened in the first century in Rome, where Rome would say to the believers, look, you can worship your God all that you want, just make sure you don't forget to pay tribute to our gods. That's that kind of compromise that can take place. That might be the pressure that we face when we recognize the reality of living in an unbelieving world. So how can the community of God remain faithful when feeling pressed by an unbelieving world, when feeling the pressure to compromise the faithful beliefs and practices that mark us as God's people? What do we do? Well, Peter answers this question for us by giving us four insights, four directions for remaining faithful in an unbelieving world. Here, Peter is going to challenge our natural tendency to focus on ourselves when we're feeling pressed and instead cause us to look to the interests of others in order to glorify God. Look again with me as we read together once more 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of varied grace, whoever speaks is the one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. The first response that Peter provides for us. The first direction that he gives to us for how to remain faithful in an unbelieving world is this. He says, set your mind to this truth. Doing God's will is better than giving in to sinful desires. Let me say that again. Doing God's will is better than giving in to sinful desires. And that is no matter what the consequence might be. That's what he's saying in these first seven verses. But the way that he is going to unpack this, I want, I want to give us some headlines here. Because what we want to do, there's a lot that we could say about these first seven verses, but what I want to do is I want to point out the three most important things about this particular direction. Setting our minds 
to believe that doing God's will is better than giving in to sinful pleasures. Here are the three things that Peter does to explain this idea. First of all, he tells us, you have an example. You have a model before you for what this might look like. Number two, we have reasons for why we are to set our minds on this particular belief. And number three, we have how we might be able to do it. How do you cultivate this sort of mindset? Let me start with the first one, the example that you and I have, according to the word, for setting our mind on this particular belief that doing God's will is better than giving in to our sinful desires. And Peter says, have the same mindset as who? As Jesus. Jesus is the primary example, Peter says, for someone who truly believed that to accomplish God's will is better than giving in to sinful desires, no matter what the consequence might be. When I read this passage and I think about Peter's life, I wonder if one of the things that he has in mind is that time when Jesus walked with him in his final day into that garden in Gethsemane. When he said to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, come with me and pray. You remember that time, right? Jesus is overwhelmed with what he is about to do, committing himself over to die. And so he goes into this garden and he is distressed and he says to the disciples, you stay here, pray with me, but I will go and pray to the Father. And what does Jesus say? He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus returns to the disciples and finds them sleeping. And he says, wake up. Can't you stay up for a little while to pray with me? And he goes again and he prays the same thing. If this cup can pass from me, please. But not my will, but your will be done, Father. He returns to the disciples and finds them sleeping once again. And instead of waking them, waking them up, he returns back to his place in the garden and he prays once more the same prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus understood the cost of his obedience. Jesus understood that to do this thing that he was about to do was going to cost his life. It was going to separate him from the Father. Yet he says, he prays, not my will, but your will be done. For Jesus, the will of the Father is the greatest thing that ought to be done. Even if we are punished for it. Even if you face suffering for doing God's will, it is the right thing and the best thing to do. Jesus serves as an example for us. But then Peter says to us, there is a reason why you and I ought to have this kind of mindset. There is uh, an explanation for it. Look at what he says later on in the passage. He starts talking about time. He says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Later on in verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Here's what we have to understand. The Apostle Peter, like all of the apostles, understood time according to certain eras. There are two eras in the mind of the Apostle. There is the era before Christ, and there is the era after Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, we mark time in similar ways, right? 
when I was in school, we did B.C. and A.D., which is the Latin form of saying before Christ and after the Lord's dominion. Uh, now it might be B.C.E., before the common era, and B.N.C.E., after the common era. But the, but the idea is the same, right? We are designating certain eras to mark time. And that is what the apostles understand time to, uh, how time functions. In other words... There was a time prior to Christ's death and resurrection. That was the time before Christ. That was the old era. That was the era that you and I were uh, were living out our sensualities. We're living out according to our sinful desires, Peter says. But then something miraculous happened. The Messiah came and he died and raised from the dead. And that ushered in a new era. That era is often called the last days. Because it is the time of waiting of experiencing something new, but also waiting for that culmination when Jesus will return, when the Messiah will return, to do what? To vindicate his people. Peter comes back to this idea time and time again. The faithful one will be vindicated in the end when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. And Peter says, look, you are no longer a part of that old era. You have been ushered in, if you have placed your faith in Christ, into the new era, the era of the last days, that era where, where sin and death doesn't hold control over you. You have, been, you have been crucified with Christ. You have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. And you have been ushered into this new era. Many of you are teachers in the room. And you've experienced something like what Peter is about to say to the believers when you're dealing with the kids in your classroom and they are acting in such a way that is not fitting for their age. Meredith would come home and tell me that her third graders were acting like first graders, and so she would have to say to them, if you're acting like a first grader, I will have to treat you like a first grader. Uh, Teachers, Carlos, you've experienced that, right? But what are you trying to say? Jordan's nodding her head as well, right? Uh, What are you trying to say? This shouldn't be the case for you. That time has long passed. You should not be controlled by that former way of being. You are no longer in that age. That's what Peter is saying here. He's saying, look, the time is over for you to go back and be unfaithful to God, to to give in to your passions, to your desires, to, to your sinful inclinations. That time is past. No longer the case if you have been crucified and raised from the dead with Christ. That final time also says something about those who are persecuting the Christians. Peter is saying that in the final time, they will be proven wrong because the faithful one will be vindicated. Yes, today you're maligned and you are ridiculed, but in the final day, the Lord will demonstrate that you are truly the people of God. But then how do we do this? Look at verse 7. The Apostle Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's as if Peter is going back to the garden. And instead of looking at Jesus' example, he's looking at his own example and the words that Jesus told him. Because each time that Jesus returned to his disciples, what did he say? Take care. Be on guard. Pray for the hour is at hand. And then finally, when, 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 the, when the betrayers come to get Jesus, what does Jesus say? Wake up. 
The time for rest is over. Now you must be ready. So how do we do this? How do we cultivate this mind that is ready to believe, to accept this reality, that to do God's will is better than to give in to our sinful desires? Well, the first direction that Peter gives us is simple. You pray Jesus' words. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. As we pray this prayer and we fail and fall asleep time and time again, we discover that the repetition of the prayer, the commitment to continue to fall before God and say, Lord, I want this to pass, but not my will, but your will be done. It develops in us a commitment, a steadfastness to be able to persevere in faithfulness before God. That's the first direction that Peter gives us. He first tells us that we must have this mindset, this belief, this conviction that it is better to do God's will than to give in to sinful desires. And then Peter is going to take a shift in the second half of the passage, and he's going to give us three other directions. And, and, and these, these are surprising directions. They're simple, but they're surprising. Because the way that Peter is going to answer the question, how do we remain faithful, surrounded by, pressed by an unbelieving world, the way that he's going to respond to us is he's going to say to us, stop looking at yourself and instead start looking at the needs of other people. The way that we remain faithful in the midst of an unbelieving world is to stop focusing on my needs, my desires, and instead look for opportunities to serve those around me. This is a testimony. This is the witness of the faithful Christian in an unbelieving world. It's incredible. Look at what the way he begins, the first direction that is, uh, that is teaching us this. Peter says, got to find my place. Peter says this. The way that we remain faithful is by first... Loving those around us. Let me put it this way. The first practice toward one another is to love one another earnestly. If we could visualize this sort of love, if we could picture this, it is the kind of love that is stretched to the furthest point. That is what that word earnestly means. It doesn't mean uh, with, with the best intentions. It is to stretch it as far as it goes. To love to the best, to, to, to the extent of my abilities. I am loving as far as love will take me. Look at what he says in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Of these three practices that Peter is going to tell us, we'll see the other two in a moment, this practice is necessarily the first place that we must begin. Why? Because love sustains and protects the community of faith. Love is a kind of control, a safeguard for the diverse community. The individuals in our community aren't joined together by our agreements, our interests, or our our experiences. Our community is joined together by love. That love that came to each of us when the divine creator loved us first. That love that comes from the spirit of the same divine creator into each of our own hearts and allows us to live together in harmony. Love doesn't eliminate our difference. It protects our unity. 
It allows us to live together in harmony. Love repels envy, gossip, backbiting, the weaponizing of our words against one another. Love repels our inclination towards self-preservation, vengeance, and exclusion. And it invites us to vulnerability, to sacrifice, and inclusion to those who are not like us. To love earnestly is to commit ourselves wholly to the strange act of forbearing with one another. That act of caring for one another's burdens, for our flaws and our shortcomings, and practicing time and time again the precious act of forgiving one another. To love earnestly is to commit to someone else's flourishing. It is to desire that it is to desire that each of us grow in our understanding of God's incredible grace and mercy towards each of us so that we can be free to serve him as he created us to do. You know what this sort of love does? It speaks truth to one another, yes. But it is also committed to honoring one another and forgiving one another and extending grace to one another. There are so many threats to this community. And by this community, I mean our church. Gossip, the holding of grudges, the assumption of guilt or bad intention without the speaking of directly to one another. And I'm not speaking abstractly. We've all experienced this, especially those of you who have been here longer than I have. And those of us who might be new to this community, we know that this happens all the time. These are threats to the community of God's people. But if we commit to love one another earnestly, our disagreements, our mistakes, our misunderstandings can be overcome. They can be confessed and forgiven, but only if we begin with love. Love is a kind of balm. It's, it's a kind of uh, starting place. One of, one of my closest friends at Moody, who's now retired this past year, John Kessler and I, have often talked about this reality. Some of you know John Kessler. He has come here to speak uh, at this church. But he and I, on almost every Tuesday morning for the past 14 years, would meet together and have discussions. And sometimes we would encourage one another. We would pray with one another. We would share struggles that each of us were having. Sometimes we shared frustrations that each of us were having. But there was something that was unique about my relationship with John, something that I appreciate more than anything. And that is that we knew that when he and I were talking with one another, we were starting from a place of love and friendship, and that protected the conversations that took place. We were able to speak freely to one another, to disagree with one another, to challenge one another, because we could ask for clarification We could challenge one another and call us to account. But that could only happen if we started from the basis of love and friendship. And that's what this passage is calling us to. Love one another earnestly. Why? Because it covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't hide sin. It allows the forgiveness of sin to take place. It allows us to see the flaws in one another and say, I'm not going to think the worst of you, but as a brother or sister, I'm going to think the best of you and see you in the light of what God sees you. Just as he forgave me, I can forgive you. 
You remember Peter once asked our Lord, Lord, how many times should I forgive a brother? Seventy-seven times? And Jesus says, seventy times seven. As if to say, the number is infinite. You will, if you're in a relationship with someone else, you will have to confess and forgive time and time and time again. But what joins us together is love. That is the starting place. That's the second direction that Peter gives us. The third direction that Peter gives to us to remain faithful in an unbelieving world is, again, simple. To show hospitality to one another. And that is the third direction that we have, to remain faithful in an unbelieving world. But hospitality is a strange thing. It's familiar, but it's often misunderstood. Hospitality... Uh, when we think of it, is often expressing friendship or welcoming or welcome to our friends. And that's not what Peter or the early church had in mind. In fact, the very word is a, is a strange word that tells us what Peter means. Uh, you, you've heard before that Philadelphia, for instance, uh, is rooted in Greek words. What does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love or love of brothers, Right? Hospitality in the Greek is a similar word. In fact, that first part, phila, is part of the root word. And the word that is connected to this, the compound to, to, to this friendly affection, is stranger. Peter is combining these two words to say love for a stranger. In other words, what hospitality is, is to treat a stranger as if he or she were a friend. To express the same love and care, the same tenderness that you would for someone who is a close friend of yours. And that is what Peter is saying to us. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now the thing that is remarkable about this direction is that this used to be a marker of the Christian faith. In fact, one of my former professors at Trinity, Joshua Jipp, wrote a book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. And what's interesting about that title is that he means for us to think about it. In other words, the early church understood that the gospel was rooted in an incredible act of hospitality. God was hospitable to us when we were strangers. He extended his love and welcomed us in to his table. We're going to celebrate communion in moments, right? It is an expression of God's hospitality, hospitality to, to us in that he welcomed, he welcomed us in to his table of fellowship. And by his gracious act, by his sacrifice, he says, come, friends, come, son, daughter. You are now no longer a stranger. You are no longer strangers and aliens, as Peter has been calling the believers. But you are now a friend of God. And so the early church understood that because that was the gospel, that God, who was other, was hospitable to those who were other than him. Because that is the gospel, the early church must be hospitable. The early church must look out for the strangers. The early church must be a place where strangers could find welcome as close friends. And it starts with those around us. Peter says, show hospitality to one another. But again, this isn't to those of us in the community whom we like. This isn't show hospitality to the people that you're going to hang out with regardless of the command to show hospitality. It is a, 
extension of yourself. It is a sacrificial act. I am going to show hospitality to the one who is stranger to me and welcome them as friends. And this was an incredible thing within the early church. And it continued, it extended beyond those who were a part of the local assembly. It extended to those who were visiting from other churches. It extended to those who were imprisoned uh, in their circumstances. The church would show hospitality to those individuals. And then it extended to those who were not even a part of the church. It extended to unbelievers. And this still happens today. One of our members, uh, Ricky, just came back from Greece a few weeks ago, and he shared with me a story of hospitality that is remarkable. This was a, a man that he met. He met a man by the name of Masood. And Ricky shared his story with me, and I want to share it with you to, to see the way that today hospitality is being uh, remembered in the way that the early church did. And it's an incredible thing that takes place when this happens. Masood was from Afghanistan. And he's a Muslim, or was a Muslim. And in his community, radicals came into his village and basically said, this is now our village, and so you must join us radicals. Now, Masood was a Muslim, but he did not align with or associate with this radical thought. And so he said to his family and his three kids, we have to get out of here. And so he escaped to Turkey and spent some time there in Turkey. But then in Turkey, he realized, I'm not safe here either. And so they did the bold thing of getting on a boat and taking his three children and wife to Greece to see if they could find refuge there. And the trip was a disaster. His youngest son of eight almost died on the trip. And by the time they get to Greece, to the refugee camp, the child is going to die. And so the refugee camp provides some kind of aid there. But then Masood and his family meet some people who say, listen, I know that you're receiving some care and you're receiving some housing here, but we have houses for you. And you can come and stay in these houses and we'll provide medicine for you as well for your son so that he can be healed. So Masood says, sure, that sounds great. These conditions are terrible. My son isn't getting better. We'll go with you. And then within the month, Masood realizes that these people are Christians. Masood comes from a Muslim background in Afghanistan, and he's heard about these Christians, and he's heard that they're very dangerous people. And they're very pushy people, and they will make demands of you if they extend some kind of grace and help to you. But to Masood's astonishment, these Christians don't say a thing. They say to Masood, this is your home. Here's the medicine. We'll take care of you. Three months pass. They haven't shared the gospel. On the fourth month, they, uh, the son is doing much better. They're providing language training so that Masood and his family can, uh, can become a part of the Greek culture. Uh, they're helping them fill out forms to, to, to receive the proper paperwork. Uh, they're providing job training for Masood so that he can, again, be a successful person in this community. They have meals together, and Masood says that he often saw the Christians praying, but they never asked him to join the prayer. And then he found out that they were having Bible studies, but they never asked him to join the Bible study. And after six months, with a bit of an expletive, he says, what is going on here? I've heard things about Christians, and this doesn't make sense to me. What is it that you are doing? Why haven't you asked anything of me in return? And the believers say to him, 
We don't expect anything in return. Because God was hospitable to us, and through Jesus, we have a relationship with him. And we believe that he calls us to share hospitality with others, too. And he says, I've heard of Jesus, but I haven't heard about this Jesus. And so he says, I want to become a Christian. And he brings his whole family to be baptized, to become Christians. Today, Masood is a pastor in Greece. And what he is doing is he is, the church is buying other homes. And they're going to the refugee camps. And this time they know the language. So instead of saying, hey, friend, they say, hey, cousin, we have a home for you. This was us a few years ago. Why don't you come and join us? And they do the same thing. They don't say anything about Jesus until the person is, is somewhat bewildered at the strange behavior of these hospitable Christians. So now they say, I want to understand what it is that you believe. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. That is what hospitality looks like. Now, I know you might say, we have the mission home, sure, but can we buy other homes? Can we uh, meet the needs of refugees? There are so many needs. Can we do these things? Well, we already do some of this work already, right? We heard during our announcements, our community dinner is happening June, June 9th. June 8th? 9th, there it is. On June 9th, 5.30. But here's the thing about these community dinners. Here's the thing about hospitality. Hospitality... It's not just serving. That's part of it. But it's about treating a stranger like a friend. It is about viewing the humanity in someone else and listening to one another and hearing and sharing each other's stories of grabbing a seat at the table and having a meal together. We're not just serving the people in our community who come to these community dinners. We are sharing a meal together, just as the Lord shared a meal with us. But there are other opportunities for, uh, for hospitality all around us. Uh, there's, uh, I've been moved recently by a ministry that we've heard about. Meredith and I feel as though the Lord is putting this on our hearts because we keep on hearing things related to prison ministries. And we found this website called prisonfellowship.org where they're encouraging churches to be more involved. And they do incredible work. They do job training. They do Bible studies. They do uh, 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 interacting with, with family members who are, in, uh, uh, who, who, are out of, who are not in prison, but their family members are in prison. Uh, and we've decided to sign up. And I want to encourage you. Someone else has already told me that they're going to sign up with us or want information. I want to encourage you, if you've ever thought about what it might look like to share hospitality with believers and non-believers who are in prison... Perhaps you might sign up on prisonfellowship.org to receive more information. Or if you want more information from me after I receive it, let me know and I can share that with you. But those, are, those might seem a bit extreme. The reality is that this community that we're a part of, this Humble Park, Logan Square community, is in desperate need of hospitality. And as a church, we believe that we are best suited to extend open doors, to minister for the sake of time, I won't read the full story, but, they were, but I came across an incredible story in The Atlantic where the author is relating to a particular experience that she had. The article is called Listening to My Neighbor's Fight. And she's talking about this strange experience that she had where uh, she lives in New York City where people basically live on top of one another. And she comes home one day and finds out that one of her neighbors, who she had no idea what this person's name was, what this person looked like, was killed in the apartment 
by a boyfriend. And as she's reflecting on this experience, listen to what she says about this experience. There was little I could have done to help her, much less to have prevented her death, yet I felt implicated. What if I had been more observant, more generous with my time and energy and attention? What if I had made more of an effort to build a sense of community in my apartment building? How could my neighbors and I have failed this woman so terribly? She later on described a time where she herself felt scared, and she said... uh, She says she realized that even in a city as dense and filled with humans as New York, you can be totally invincible. Sometimes that invincibility is privacy. The only way it's possible to live on top of one another is we do. But at other times, it's dangerous, even mortally so. Seeing one another, paying attention to one another, might be our only grace. The world knows that it is in desperate need of experiencing hospitality. The question for us is, as the church, as people who received hospitality from the living God, will we respond to the needs all around us for people who are in desperate need of experiencing hospitality, of experiencing that welcome as friends, as loved ones? Let me run to the fourth direction that Peter gives us. First, he tells us that we should set our mind to recognizing that doing the will of God is better than giving in to sin. Secondly, he says, love one another earnestly. Third, he says, show hospitality to one another. And that extends not only here in the church, but even beyond the church. And finally, he says to each of us, serve one another. That simple, just serve one another. Uh, Let me say just a couple of brief comments about what he says here, because I think it's helpful for us. Often when we think about service in the church, we tend to think of particular roles. Uh, My ministry to the church is as preacher. My ministry to the church is as the person in the nursery. But Peter doesn't have that kind of specialized ministry in view here. He basically says, you minister to people in two ways, in speech and in deed. And he says, uh, if you're going to say something to someone, listen to someone, right? These are ministries of speech. Do so as one speaking the very oracles of God. What does that mean? That means that we are urgent in our ministry. If I've heard a message from the living God, I can't hold that in. If the living God told me to encourage you, to to admonish you, to, to build you up in the Lord's word, how, why would I keep that within me? But again, this goes against the way that we think in our society, right? We want to think as private citizens. We don't want to intrude. We don't want to say something that might be offensive. But again, if we start with love, we can speak words of encouragement, of admonishment, and anticipate a loving response, even if we have overstepped our bounds, or overstepped our boundaries, rather. The second thing that we must do is we must serve one another as ones who have been given strength by God, as ones who have been supplied by the very strength of God. What does this mean? We are so busy as a society. We are so tired as a society. But what does this teach us? It teaches us that God is supplying the strength that we need. God is going to provide for us all that we need to be faithful to God's call in our lives. I'm too tired to go on Sunday night to the community dinner. Then come to the community dinner as one who has been energized 
by the strength of God. I'm too tired to show hospitality to someone else. Well, show hospitality as one who has been energized by the power of God. For what purpose? Verse 11, for the glory of God. It's not for our victory. It's not for our praise, but to the glory of God. And to him belongs all dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this charge to remain faithful in an unbelieving world. And Lord, we are surprised that faithfulness looks not at our own needs, not at our own desires, but the desires and needs of those all around us. Help us, Lord, to be a church that is outwardly focused, that would use the gifts that you've given us, the experiences that you've given us, and pass it on to someone else. To treat others how you have treated us, with love, with affection, with hospitality. May we do the same, Lord. Not for our name's sake, not for our fame, but for your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.